We're learning letter 20 tonight. It's a very special letter. It's my favorite letter. <laughs> the thing about the letters is that they're each self-contained. They're actually not a flow. Unlike the chapters in book one and two and three where it was like one big build, each letter stands completely alone. It's a separate conversation. And this letter number 20 is probably one of the most fundamental texts in all of Hasidus. It's quoted endlessly ever since the Alter Rebbe wrote it. His son, grandson, and all the Rebbes after him reference this letter. Every other discourse mentions Igeret HaKodesh Siman Chaf, Book 4, Letter 20. In fact, the Alter Rebbe wrote it just before his passing. In 1812, um, he was traveling away from Napoleon, who was chasing him down, along with the Jewish people in his area. And he stopped off in a certain village where he passed. And just before he passed, the legend goes, or the story goes, that he pulled out two notes from his pocket. One was this letter, this treatise, and another was a very similarly themed shorthand note called the Nefesh Hashvela. And essentially, it's the last thing. It's the last written record we have from the Alter Rebbe, and it really encapsulates what he stood for. Fundamentally, it's a mystical work. So on the surface when you read it, and it's really long. It's probably the longest letter in book four, for sure. Maybe even the longest letter in the Tanya. And it's mystical. It's discussing the most elementary parts of Kabbalah. But the punchline is a radical approach to the significance of this world and especially to the significance of the mitzvahs that we do in this physical world. And essentially, the Alter Rebbe makes the case that the deepest connection to truth, the deepest connection to Hashem Himself can only be experienced within the confinement, within the limitation of this universe. We're able to get closer to Hashem here than we can get anywhere in any spiritual realm. In a nutshell, here's why. Let's try to follow this. Everything spiritual has one common denominator. If you exist in a realm outside of this world, there's one thing that you can point to, one quality that's the same about every single spiritual level, creature, being, angel, soul, you name it. The one thing is the lack of self-identity, the lack of ego. The trademark of something spiritual is that if you meet it, it will tell you, I am nothing but my source. Shalom Aleichem, Olam Ha'atzilut, the spiritual world of emanation. Tell me about yourself. There's nothing about myself, just who I come from. The dependence on that which is above it consumes the identity of everything spiritual and to that end it literally feels that it's a continuum of Hashem's existence. It doesn't have a self. And what characterizes this world, on the other hand, is our independence. So while spirituality is defined by dependence, physicality and this universe is defined by independence. We have a perception that nothing came before us, 
we're self-contained, we don't need anything, and nothing is our source. Even though it's untrue, we can study and see and understand that Hashem lies at the core of everything. But because we have this sense of independence, albeit false, when we discover Hashem here, we discover Him in a completely different way than spirituality discovers Him. Spirituality, maximum, will discover God as the source of everything. Because if this level traces itself to the level before it, and that traces itself to the level before it, each one in turn has an awareness of that which is higher, ultimately they come to the end of it all, which is Hashem is the source of everything. But Hashem is not defined by being the source of things. The truest definition of Hashem is that He is. He's the ultimate existence. He's the real existence. He's the only real existence. As the Rambam says, Famously, everything in the world could exist and could not exist. Only Hashem is mechuyav ha-metziyot. His existence is obligatory. Because nothing made him, he must exist in the truest way possible. So in an interesting way, our feeling of independence is rooted in the true independence of God. And only here where the awareness to that which is above us is not felt, can we get in touch with that? So that's the summary. That obviously leads to a new philosophy on mitzvahs, because doing the physical deeds gets you in touch with that element of godliness. But the letter itself is extremely involved. Each theme is developed and it's, it's uh, given a lot of color. The it paints a very vivid uh, picture of this whole concept. And the way I'm going to teach the letter tonight is essentially the way it was taught to me, which is to distill the topics. While I could give you the letter as it reads, <coughs> it, would be, uh, it would be super esoteric. So I think that what I'm going to do is I'm going to draw the main ideas that create the body of the letter and then through that try to deliver to you um, what it is the author is contributing in this wonderful masterpiece, essentially. So here we go. And we're going to start with a few terms. Call this Kabbalah 101. Some of them we've heard before in these classes. We had a chance to, to really get into them. Some of them we only got in short. Some of them will be new. The first term is called Hishtal Shalut. Hishtal Shalut in English means, I guess, a chain or evolution. And what it means is that in Hashem's desire, He willed that reality should come into existence step by step, in gradual form and stages. One world creates the next world, one level of reality or consciousness creates the next. Within worlds, 
There are many elements. Think of our world. Our world is full of so many different things. It's so diverse. Every spiritual world is in, is in the same way diverse. There's angels, there's souls. There's what we call hechalot. There's chambers, there's sefirot, different divine attributes. Every being in every world comes into existence in gradual form. There is no, in Kabbalah's model, Big Bang, which just brings everything in. It starts with a point, the point expands, that further expands, and more and more levels, levels is a very cheap word, but layers, layers dimensions, consciousnesses, paradigms, they all evolve. One level of the hierarchy creates the next. And what that leads to is the second term I want to talk about tonight, which is called ilave alul. Ilave alul means cause and effect. The principle of cause and effect states that if something happened, something must have made it happen. Nothing happens without a happener. That's a word. The, philosoph the philosophical way of saying it is no movement happens without a mover. But it's, it's much larger than that. Nothing happens without something making it happen. Because of that, by definition, any cause and effect that you look at, that you observe, that you study, will be close to each other. That means they'll be in the same uh, world. They'll, they'll share many properties. They can know and understand each other. They can relate, let's call it. They're relatable. The classic example in Hasidus for Ilava Alul is a teacher and a student. If a teacher was able to communicate information to the student, you know that they are in the same space. The teacher is called the Ilah, he's the cause, he contains the wisdom in its refined state. He passes it on to the student in a distilled, reduced way because the student can only handle so much. Nevertheless, they're not, the chasm between them is not infinite. It has to be finite, it has to be, they have to be connected in some way. If they were infinite, no communication could take place. In fact, the, the Hasidus, not in this letter, but makes a, a, a reference to the famous story of Choni Hama'agel. This was a man who's spoken about at length in the Talmud. He, uh, fascinating story where one time he was praying for rain, God wasn't bringing rain, he drew a circle. And he said to God, I'm not leaving the circle till you bring rain. Anyway, one of the things that uh, he couldn't understand was the verse in Tehillim which says that in Galut, in exile, we were like dreamers. How could Galut be like a dream? The Galut, in his time, he lived, in earlier times, the, the, the closest Galut to him was the Galut of Babel. After the first destruction of the temple, there was a 70-year Exile, And he said, 70 years is a long time. I can't understand what that means. You're going to be like a dreamer. And Hashem said, I'll show you. And he fell asleep for 70 years. That's how the Talmud says it. He fell asleep into a slumber that carried on for 70 years. And when he awoke, this is a little story, when he went to sleep, he saw a guy planting a, a carob tree. And then when he woke up, he saw what, what he thought was the same guy and really was his grandson. Anyway, the Talmud says... He woke up from his slumber. He didn't know 70 years had passed. 
he walks into the nearest study hall. And he wants to hear what, you know, the Torah, what, what are they talking about? And he walks in and he hears rabbis discussing things and he couldn't believe it. He's like, they, they just sound like, like children. He, didn't, he couldn't speak the language. And then he hears one rabbi saying, and Choni HaMa'agel used to say, he's quoting him. He's like, hello, I'm Choni. He said, ha ha ha, Choni died years ago. We haven't seen him in 70 years. I'm not your Choni. He's like, no, I'm Choni. And he, but he, he couldn't communicate with them. After 70 years, the wisdom of Torah had descended so much and had become so um, reduced that it literally wasn't talking the same language. And he told God the famous words, O Chavruta, O Mituta, either give me a friend to study with or give me death. And he died. And Hasidah says that what happened here was exactly this. The teacher-student relationship took on an infinite form. And when there's an infinite gap between teacher and student, there is no connection, there is no relationship. So if we find a teacher passing on information to a student, he cannot be infinitely smarter. There's no such thing. Ilave alul exist in the same space. So therefore, knowing that, A, hishtal shalut, everything in spirituality is a hierarchy, and ilave alul, when there is hierarchy, the two levels must be in the same space, it follows, therefore, that every effect, every next level, layer, paradigm, consciousness, all those great words, that has been created from a previous one, knows and is aware of its cause. If you came to a certain sefirah, a certain attribute in a given world, and asked it where it came from, it would be consciously aware of where it came from. And with awareness comes dependency. If it's aware of its cause, it knows that this caused me to exist. It knows that it's dependent on this cause. It knows that it cannot exist without its cause. It knows that its whole identity is dependent upon that which came before it. And, here's the fascinating clincher, dependency on your cause equals humility. Humility. There's no room for ego when you recognize your needs. We know this even in our physical world. The minute a person really comes in touch with the fact that I need to eat, I need to sleep, I can't get around without a car. Uh, when you're a kid, you need your parents to take care of you. A person who's handicapped knows this much more because you feel it. You, you can't get around as a person could. When you really get in touch with the fact that you need so much, there's just not a lot of room for ego. There's not, not a lot of room for holding yourself haughty. So in the higher realm, that's us coming to discovery that we need outside circumstances to make us think about it. But in the higher world, that's how it is naturally. Every single effect is fully aware of its cause, aware that it's dependent on its cause, and when you're aware that you're dependent, you're automatically completely humble. In Hebrew, the Hebrew term for this is bitul. Bitul is typically translated as nullification, but it's also a cheap word. What it means is identityless. You come to a point where you realize that you are but a manifestation or a fulfillment of that which exists before you. And the Rebbe goes so far as to say that even if a spiritual level, layer, again, all these things, and whenever I say level, I mean all those wonderful things. Even if a given spiritual level is aware that it has an individualized definition, it sees itself, though, as a byproduct of the greater whole, which is satisfying Hashem's desire. The Rebbe once gave a great example for this. He used it in a completely different context, but I think it's, it really applies. He says, if, can you picture a Jewish court case? where you have Reuven and Shimon, it's the classic Jewish name right in the Talmud, two Jews came to an argument, they're disputing, there's a money issue. There's a, a loan in question, 
there's, there's, there's money involved. And the judge rules that Reuven is obligated to pay Shimon. The ruling directly relates to money. Right? $50,000 now is going to have to be paid from one to the other. But if you ask the judge, how do you see the ruling that you just issued? He doesn't see it as a monetary thing. He sees it as another detail in keeping the laws of the Torah. It happens to me today. It manifested in $50,000 loan. Tomorrow, when a woman comes to me with her chicken, asks me if it's kosher, Hashem's Torah is going to come and be revealed in the chicken. And then the next day when it's a question of a divorce, and the next day when it's a question about something else, for the, for the Rav, for the Rabbi who's ruling on the cases, each individual case doesn't have its own identity. It's just part of a greater whole. It's part of the Torah, which I teach. Go to Ruven, on the other hand, and say, hey, what did this ruling mean to you? To him, it means he's short $50,000 now. The money in the case takes on the primary focus. Whereas if you can ascend to the level of the Rav, it's just a byproduct of fulfilling the Torah. So in the same way, this is the metaphor, the illustration for the fact that in spiritual worlds, even if a certain being is aware, I am God's chesed, I am the expression of God's kindness, and the other one is aware, I am the expression of God's severity, his gevura. But if you ask them, they're not chesed or gevura, I'm just fulfilling Hashem's will. He programmed me to fulfill him in this way. He programmed me to fulfill him in that way. But I'm not anything on my own. That's what bitul looks like. Bitul looks like, not where you necessarily completely lose your ego, but even, with, even within the context of your ego, you're aware that you're contributing to something bigger than yourself. Are we following so far? It's a lot. I, I, this, is, this letter is a lot. It's, every, it's packed. It's packed. Here's another conclusion that emerges from this conversation. By the rules that we're playing right now, it would be impossible to create something fundamentally new. There would be no such thing as a completely novel creation because if every single level in the hierarchy is constantly aware and dependent upon that which preceded it, nothing radical will ever happen. You can reduce it, you can distill it, you can contract it, you can compress it. It'll have less and less and less of the original properties of the highest level in the hierarchy, but it'll always be in the same world because as long as you're functioning on cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect, not just each individual cause and effect share the world. The highest rung on the ladder and the lowest rung on the ladder always have to share some form of common denominator. So there will never be a quantum leap into a new type of reality that sees no attachment to what came before it. So that's the premises that you need to accept to now go into the discussion. Because if we accept this, this creates a major problem. And the major problem is that at the bottom of the ladder, we do have something that seems to be completely different. We have us. We're looking at the bottom of the ladder. We are the end of Hishtal Shalut. We are the end of the chain reaction of the world. It's physical. It's a universe where Hashem wants to live ultimately as a home when Mashiach comes. But we live in a world that has no awareness of source. We don't, we don't follow those rules. Although we seem to be a cause and effect, of course we came from, nothing can happen without a hap something making it happen, but we, you walk around, there's nothing about us that traces its source to, to anything higher. We certainly don't, don't feel dependent on it, I know that. We walk around feeling super egotistical, 
and super full of ourselves and super haughty and super arrogant. You look at another physical existence, you don't see how it can't last without Hashem. Dalt Rebbe says, maybe you can see elements that reflect a source. Like the Talmud says that some of the character traits of an ox will reflect the ox in Hashem's chariot. And some of the character traits of a human will reflect the human traits of God. But that's character. That's not physical biomass. The physical existence that makes up our world on the surface, it, it cannot be traced to anything. It, seem, it does seem fundamentally and radically new. So, so how'd that happen? So here we introduce our next term. And this one's called Yeshme'ayin. Yeshme'ayin means, in fancy words, ex nihilo, something from nothing. And it's the Kabbalistic term for any observable creation that does not seem to follow the rules of Ilava Alul. If something is not subscribing to the cause and effect rules, it seems separate from its own source, we call it Yeshme'ayin, something from nothing. And something from nothing is misleading. Because it's not from nothing. It didn't come from nothing. It came from Hashem. <coughs> Everything comes from Hashem. The more accurate translation, as Hasidus puts it, is something from a non-thing. From a non-thing. Which means that in the process of creating our universe, okay, we're going to use our universe as the paradigm for yesh, for something which exists independently or seems to exist independently. In the process of creating our universe, Hashem programmed the source to not be felt or comprehended by that which would emerge from it. He made the source into ayin, into a non-thing. Each of us can understand that there are certain things that don't exist in our world. You ever hear that concept? Like, it doesn't exist in my world. Basically what it means is that there are different realms of space where, where different things operate. You, you try teaching math to a stone. It, it doesn't work. It's a different... In the world of stones, there is no intellect. So if you asked the stone, does intellect exist? It will tell you intellect is a non-thing to me. doesn't mean it's nothing, but it's, it's, in my world, it's just not a thing. Therefore, you don't have to subscribe to any of the properties that govern intellect. It's a different, different ballgame. So yesh me'ayin means that if you see something which is yesh, yesh is the, again, the Kabbalistic term, for something which exists with a perceived independence. Or a true one, but for us, perceived independence. If you see a yesh, you know it's me'ayin. It's coming from a non-thing. This is the, the rare case where a quantum leap has been allowed to occur. Not because the rules were violated, but because Hashem programmed the source in that way. He decided that in this final jump, when we traverse the boundary from spiritual to physical, it's going to be made in this way of yesh me'ayin. And that's what happens. We walk around. How are you? I'm a yesh. 
I'm an ego, don't have any source, what are you talking about? <laughs> Nothing that I'm aware of, right? May I in that? That's the, the knee-jerk solution. If you see a yesh, you could know there's me'ayin. But we didn't address the core issue. And this is really where the letter kicks in. How did that happen? If the entire hishtal shalut, if the entire hierarchy is following the rules of ilave alul, is following the rules of cause and effect, I, I only know my source, I only am my source, there is no identity, then how did we get here? There's nothing in any of the spiritual world that can possibly create something like that. How do you have, an, how, how do you have a, a, a consciousness which only says, I am my source, create something which will say, I am not my source? It, it, Hashem designed it, but how? See, that's the question. In other words, what, what is the mechanism? How did it happen? How did Yesh come to exist? It violates all the principles of Ilav Alul. It violates all the principles of the hierarchy where one is constantly aware of the other. But more importantly, and here's the bigger problem, and, I, and, and where the, radic the radical contribution of the Alter Rebbe can be appreciated is, our independence is actually false. So the question that I asked before, how does a yesh come into existence? That's nice if we're talking about a real independent existence. But our independence is totally perceived. It's, a t it's totally a one-way story. If you can see it, it's an illusion. If you can see it from the other side, if you can see it from how Hashem observes it, you would see that everything is, is nothing. Everything is not independent at all. And what's particularly troublesome about this lie is that it's not a man-made, manufactured lie. See, lies in our world, um, they, they exist. Right? We're, we're, we're falsehoods are around us all the time. But falsehoods only exist insofar as people believe them. The second you expose a lie is when it vanishes. But this is a cosmic lie. This is a lie that we didn't create. Hashem wired us to feel independent and to complete, be completely disconnected from our source. So who's feeding that lie? We didn't make it up. It's not a human lie. It's almost like it's a godly lie. It's almost like there's a godly, divine energy that's feeding a contradiction to itself. Before we answer the question, we have to unpack it a little more. Okay? And we're, we're short. We're short on time, and I'm, I'm, there's so much Kabbalistic nuance that I don't want to miss, but we're going to have to skip around a little bit, okay? Until now, I've been defining <coughs> Yesh as this universe. The reality in which we perceive ourselves to be outside of our source is only here in the physical world. The Alter Rebbe says that it's more complex than that. He suggests that the concept of Yesh already exists in higher realms. The idea of something being unaware or at least not feeling wholly and totally submitted to its source already exists in higher realms. And the way it's explained by later discourses of the later Rebbe's is if somebody says, I have an ego, but I gave it up, that statement itself 
involves ego. Yeah. Right? The supposition of I've given up my ego is that there is an ego. Yeah. So not everything subservient is egoless necessarily in a more refined way. So the later Rebbe's explained that's the Alter Rebbe's basis for what he tells us here. There has to be the concept of yesh and higher existences because not every humility is completely egoless. And he, he gives it specific labels, the Alter Rebbe. He says, and I don't want to belabor you know, all of these things because each one could be a class unto its own, but we're familiar that there's four basic worlds in the hierarchy of Hishtal Shalut. We call Atzilut, Biri'ah, Yitzira, and Asiyah. Atzilut is the world of emanation. It's kind of neither here nor there. It's not a new creation, but it's not its own existence. And then we have Biri'ah, which means creation, Yitzira, formation, Asiyah, and action. Every world, like our world, is incredibly diverse. The core of each world is called the sefirot, the divine attributes. The sefirot are made up of what's called in Kabbalah, orot and kelim, divine lights and divine vessels. Like everything in this world, um, light would be the metaphor for that which is being communicated. Vessels is the metaphor for the method by which it's communicated. So if I'm talking, the or, the light, is what I'm saying. The kelim are the letters and the words that I'm using to communicate it. Huh? Yes, Kilim also received the light. So in that way, the or would be my entire speech and the Kilim would be your brains. So the receivers can kind of expand the larger your context is. That's the core of the world. But there's a whole world outside of that. There's what's called Hechalot and chambers and angels and souls and different things. Kind of like in this world, you have the Bet HaMikdash with the core of the world and then everything that revolves around it. Nobody lives in the Bet HaMikdash. You live outside and you get inspiration from it. So in the same way, every world, the Sefirot are like the Bet HaMikdash, they're the core and then the energy expands to the rest of the world. So the Alter Rebbe says, in Atzilut, both the Orot and the Kelim, both the lights and the vessels are completely godly, truly egoless. But everything else that exists outside of that, the rest of the world, parts of the angels, they already assume an element of yesh. Not the way we experience it, they're totally independent and fully egotistical, but an idea of, I've given up my ego, which says, I have an ego, which I gave up. Al Rebbe says, souls, it's, it's kind of hard to say what they are. Souls are neither here nor there. They're me'ain elokut, he calls them. They're a semblance of godliness. Because in the end, they do take form in a body, which means they have the potential for that. But he says, for our purposes, we'll call them godly. And he says, certain righteous people, their souls retain their godliness even as they descend into this world. Like, they stay egoless. Once in a generation, twice in a generation, real tzaddikim, they have that full submission to Hashem even here. But for Atzilut's purposes, just the outside of the core, orot and kilim, are godly. Everything outside of it is already a yesh. The lower you descend to the next world, in Buriyah, Yitzirah, and Asiyah, which are typically categorized together, the Orot remain godly, even there, only some parts of it. And again, I'm skipping the nuance. The Kelim, the receivers, are now limited, finite conductors. They already assume a level of yesh. That's why there's multiplicity, that's why there's diversity, that's why there's 
a lot more going on in the worlds of Briyah, Yitzirah, and Asiyah as it's studied in the Kabbalistic texts. Essentially, I think what the Rebbe is saying is that godliness and infinity are not synonymous. People typically think, if I'm godly, I'm infinite. No, you can be finite and godly. The key is, are you egoless? Godliness is synonymous with humility. And the level, this, to the degree which you've stepped out of the humility is to the degree which you begin to assume your own yeshus, your own independent sense of self. So now, the question has expanded because it's not like we're talking about, you know, we had a whole hierarchy of Ishtar and boom, came out a yesh in this physical world, in this physical universe. There are elements of this stuff that can be traced back way, way higher. So the question is much more broad. Where does any form of yesh begin? How does any sense of self allowed for in this, in this system? And here's where the Alter Rebbe's, I think, key contribution in this letter comes in. And it's extremely terse, it's extremely shorthand, and I'm going to try to just communicate for the time that I have left till Myriv, because we are on a clock. The term that the Alter Rebbe introduces for the solution is called Or Me'ein Hama'or. Light is like the luminary. The luminary, the source. Ma'or is the source of light. Light is like the luminary. In one line, what this means is, when you do not try to define essence, you have the opportunity to carry essence. The moment you try to contain the essence is the moment it runs away from you. But when you're a perfect reflection of that which is above you, latently, you can carry possibilities and qualities that are completely infinite and beyond yourself. Not in this letter, classic example given for this is reproduction. Parents create children that are completely their own beings. We give our children the entirety of ourselves, the core of ourselves. That's why you can have a blind father and a seeing child. Because when the father passes on his essence to the ch and informing the baby, none of his qualities are getting passed on. It's his essence that's getting passed on. Versus when I, right, versus when I speak, let's say to you, and I'm passing on my intellect, I, you never get the essence. You only get a, a part of it. How much do you remember of a given class? A little bit. How much do I know of the Tanya that I'm studying? Only a little bit. Ideas don't get passed on in essential ways. Reproduction happens in, in an essential way. And Hasidus makes the observation that the reason that reproduction happens in a physical drop of semen is because only physicality can contain the essence. The second you try to, you, you try to define it is the moment you've lost touch with it. Physicality is so not in the world of essence that specifically it becomes the vehicle to carry the utmost of the human being. So in the same way it applies in spiritual sense, or, or is light, the divine light, the expression of Hashem, godliness. Godliness is not God, but it's a perfect reflection of Him. And because it's a perfect reflection of Him, as it descends and touches the different levels of the Hishtal Shalut, the different levels of the hierarchy, and new things are being created, it can carry the deepest parts of God Himself. And the deepest part of God Himself is His independence. The deepest part of God Himself is the fact that He is beyond anything else. 
not what he does. You know, the Alter Rebbe has a famous line in a different discourse. The essence of God is not the fact that he's a creator. We tend to, Hashem is the creator. Creator is peanuts for God. The essence of Hashem is totally transcendent and totally beyond that. It's his isness, if you will, that is his, mo- that is his most defining character trait. Says the Alter Rebbe, in the building blocks of creation, in Hashem's divine light, because it's a carbon copy, a direct spitting mirror image of himself, it's able to carry within it that trait of absolute, truthful yeshut, true independence. And when it touches different levels along its way down, it invests those things with a, not true, but perceived independence. An independence which blossoms and grows and gets further and further egotistical as the levels descend. The Alter Rebbe has a very nuanced discussion where he talks about how where exactly does the or have to touch to allow this yesh to blossom. He, he uses the principle what's called the highest is always present in the lowest. And he says in the lowest element of every realm just before we cross the border into the next realm that's where infinity is most present. In Kabbalah, the highest sefirah is Keter, the crown. The lowest sefirah is Malchut, kingship. Who wears the crown? The king. In other words, there's a fusion of the highest and the lowest. I'm really talking in code, just because I want to get across all the information, but we can expand it all, Bezrat Hashem, in different opportunities. But the, the core idea is, the core idea is, that divine light can become a vehicle for that which is completely beyond itself. And then the Alter Rebbe makes the kicker in the last ten lines of the letter. So that everything that was building up till now is just for these ten lines. He says, the ultimate isness of Hashem is present in every area that we can call yesh. Anytime you can find something which is independent, you can know that it traces itself to that ultimate essence of God but it's most present here because only in the physical world do we have a possibility to itself create more yesh me'ayin, more things that are completely independent. Humans can create humans. The earth can create new trees in a completely incomparable way. You have one little kernel turns into hundreds and thousands of kernels. One little seed turns into a tree. It's a, it's a totally, it's, it's a quantum leap. Specifically here is where we get the most access to God's truest self. And that's why Hashem wired this world, the Alter Rebbe says, that's why Hashem wired this world, that everything must be fed from the bottom of the chain. And we talk about there being four kingdoms in the world, the human kingdom, the animal kingdom, the vegetable kingdom, the mineral kingdom. Humans are on top, right? But we need the other kingdoms to survive. We need to eat from the meat, eat from the, gra- from the vegetables which are produced from the ground. So it's kind of inverted. We are the highest on the chain, but we rely on the lowest because the lowest is where God's truth is most present. In a counterintuitive way, as Kabbalah says, yesh hanivra hu hayesha amiti. The, the independence felt by every creature is a reflection of the independence of God. And the Alter Rebbe says, dat nakel. When comprehending and contemplating all of this, it becomes easy 
for the understanding person to realize the incredible value of doing a mitzvah in this world. When you do a mitzvah, a physical deed, carries godliness into this world, which part of God do you access? Not the part of God that's the source for things. You access the part of God that He put into this creation in order to create you as you are. That's why Hasidus believes you don't have to bring God anywhere. Kabbalah was all about that. You have to bring God everywhere. God is everywhere. We have to uncover the God that's in this world. The word discover in English actually means discover, right? To remove the cover. Every physical mitzvah, every physical thing in the world being used for a mitzvah carries the essence of God within itself. And when you use it for what, for what its purpose is, you uncover it. And the Rebbe, in a commentary on this talk, he says, he makes the same point that I made before about reproduction. Nothing about a lulav, a physical palm branch, matches what you would need to carry essence. Like if you wanted to create the ideal conductor for Hashem's essence, would it look like a physical leaf and a palm tree or a matzah or a donut? Like, it's, it's, it's completely out of the world of Hashem's essence. And yet because of that, because it doesn't try to contain it, is why it does contain it. And the Rebbe says the lesson that comes out of this is incredible. If a person finds himself doing a mitzvah with no feeling, I can't get myself to be inspired about doing mitzvahs. All I have is the deed, says the Rebbe, you may have something deeper than the guy who meditates on the mitzvah and finds <laughs> significance in it. Because the whole, what makes the mitzvah so valuable is the fact that it's physicality at its core and therefore can carry the essence. When your mitzvah is divested of all spirituality, you find no meaning, you just wrap the tefillin because Hashem said so, you carry Hashem in the deepest way. That's why it says, One moment of mitzvahs in this world is better than the entire world to come. Because here you can reach what, what, what you can never reach anywhere else. It's also that thing that goes back to, um, I don't know what chapter it was, but it was... The last chapter you were here. Yeah, that's <laughs> the whole idea of like, that the only way for a finite being to have a relationship with the finite is to follow his rules and set the ego aside. Yes. Right. So the more ridiculous the lulav and the etrog is, and the way you have to shake and all the details, you the more you connect to the infinite. Yeah, you have to. Exactly. When an egotistical being can say, "I give up my ego to Hashem," there's the most value there. You you get in touch with the deepest things. And I think it's incredibly divine providence that we're learning this before, the night before Shavuos because as Slava said before, that's what Shavuos is. What happened on Shavuos? Nothing new if you think about it. All the Ten Commandments, we mostly had them all before. Believing in God was a Noahide law. Not murdering was a Noahide law. Honoring your parents on Shabbat was given a month before. What we got on Shavuot was the possibility to infuse the physical with the spiritual. Now when you put on tefillin, it becomes holy. Bridging that gap and finding the inherent value in the physical. If you, if your mentality thinks that waving a love <coughs> is a ridiculous act, and you do it anyway, mm -hmm. and you're facing the east and you're doing it you know, as commanded, you really are kind of slaying your ego. Sure, right? that, that's, that's ego the biggest slaying of the ego. The exactly. Exactly, and there you find the, mo the, the most pure elements of Hashem. That's the Alter Rebbe's point here. 
Altrib's radical approaches, he says, if everything that appears to be independent is created from the ultimate independence, so when we use that in the search of Hashem's independence, we reach that level of His independence. And that can only happen here. That's why in the end, where are we going to come back to when Mashiach comes? We're going to come back here. The ultimate reward is not physical, it's spiritual, it's physical. Because only here can you reach Hashem's essence. So with that, Chevre, mitzvah should have a new appreciation. Shavuot should be meaningful. We should accept the Torah. Each in our way, bring Hashem more into our physical life. Surrender ourselves a little bit more to Him. Make another resolution to learn and do another mitzvah and understand that it's specifically here where we access the deepest parts of Hashem.